from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. to a Baha'i perspective. I recorded an interview with Joan Hernandez on December 18, 2017. Joan has spent most of her adult life in Guatemala and Bolivia. She's written several books, the most recent of which is called The Baha'i Response to the Crisis of Our Time, What Each of Us Can Do to Create a Better World. We discussed the book in the interview as well as having Joan read an excerpt. I started the interview by asking Joan where she grew up, And what was religious life like growing up? I grew up in Gaylord, Michigan, which is a small town about 60 miles south of the Straits of Mackinac. Snow about six months a year, a little town of about 2,500 people. And I lived there until I was 18. My parents attended the Congregational Church. My mother chose that church because she said they let her ask questions, and she was a questioner. She didn't accept things just because the minister told her, but the minister of that church was very open and said she could ask all the questions she liked, and so we went there. I had a fairly active religious upbringing. We went to Sunday school every Sunday, even though we were a family of skiers. Um, We would go to the early church service and then hit the slopes. So I went to Sunday school every Sunday, and as I grew a bit older, I went to church camp during the summer and was very active in the church, sang in the choir, and participated, I think, when I was a little older than I actually taught, like the junior youth group there in the church, and was very active in the church activities. Can you describe your spiritual journey that led you to the Baha'i faith? I think I'll start a bit further back because my spiritual journey started within Christianity. When I was 16, even though I was very active in the church, you know, that's an age of questioning. And I began to feel I need to find out what it really means to be a Christian or I should stop just going to church for the sake of going. This was in the 1960s. So, you know, we are in the epoch of civil rights, the war on poverty, and a lot of idealism among youth. I think I was waiting for someone to tell me, drop out of high school and go to the inner city and start serving the people or something very idealistic like that, but no one told me that. My minister suggested that I visit the sick, which I did. I would walk through the poor sections of town and became friends with some of the families there. I went to a Baptist tent meeting and went forward to get saved and was sincerely searching within Christianity. As I said, what does it really mean to be a Christian? I also participated in a project, a youth project, went out to Montana and worked on an Indian reservation between my junior and senior year in high school. In my senior year of high school, a little bit before I graduated, I'd been reading a book about a special church in the Washington, D.C. area which was called the Church of the Savior. And that was very along the lines in which I was interested of social service, like every single member of the church had to be involved in some sort of 
project, um, serving, especially serving the poor, serving in, you know, the inner city. It occurred to me one day I was in church and during prayers, I thought, well, I could write to the author of this book and ask if I could go there this summer, which I did. And it was a very good experience. From then on, the next couple of years, I would take advantage of my vacations to try to go visit interesting churches. In my spring vacation in my freshman year of college, at that time, there was a type of revival among the mainstream churches, but along the lines of Pentecostal experiences. And I visited a church in Chandler, Arizona. I experienced the laying on of hands and began to speak in tongues. I remember my mother saying, you sound like you're very much in love with God. I mean, I would write her letters about this. I could say that I was very into Christianity, but I was a searcher. I was investigating. And basically, after four years of search, by the time I was 20 years old, which was when I first heard about the Baha'i faith, I had come to a conclusion, like Christianity was very important to me, but what did it mean to me? I took Christ as my example. I was very into prayer, and I thought it was important to attend church, but I wasn't particularly attached to any particular denomination. I usually tried to find a church where I felt that there was a strong connection with God. Yeah, well, basically, <laughs> doesn't every church have a strong connection to God? Like the church I grew up in, the Congregational Church, and other churches hmm, along that line, I felt were more of strong moral teachings, but a little bit more from an intellectual perspective, whereas other churches, like this church that I visited in Chandler, Arizona, was a really strong feeling of being connected with God, but there were things that I didn't like about it because there was a certain amount of dogmatism, criticism of other churches, literal interpretations that as a university student I couldn't really agree with. So I really enjoyed the spirit, but intellectually I felt like I had to repress some of my thoughts in order to get along. So I'm not sure about that. I mean, obviously, every church believes in God, every church prays, but I guess I'm talking on the feeling level that at least in some churches that I attended, I felt a stronger connection with God than in others that was more like an, a more intellectual sermon. So I'm speaking with Joan Hernandez. She is the author of the book, The Baha'i Response to the Crisis of Our Time what each of us can do to create a better world. And right now, Joan is describing her spiritual journey that took her from being involved in Christianity that led her to the Baha'i faith. So, Joan, continue your description of your journey, your spiritual journey. You know, I mentioned that where I had come to in my journey was a very strong belief in Christ, especially taking him as my example, and a very strong belief in prayer. My sophomore year, I changed colleges. I went to Prescott College in Prescott, Arizona. I became friends with a girl named Ruth, who was a very impressive person. She was completely blind, and so I got to know her because she was looking for readers. 
we really hit it off as friends because we had a lot in common. We both were interested in serving the poor and the needy, and we gave volunteer service together. In spite of the fact that she was blind, we gave service in a home for children with special needs. And she was a Baha'i. But I was so into Christianity at that time that basically I felt, good, here's another person with whom I can pray. I don't know if I even asked her or if I even had much clarity on the fact that the Baha'i faith was not a branch of Christianity. Since I was fairly open within my Christian belief, I wasn't attached to any particular denomination. And I was very attached to prayer. I was just happy that here was someone with whom I could pray. So we were friends all that year in college, but I didn't really learn much about the Baha'i faith from her. But as I said, I was kind of a spiritual adventurer. Every vacation, I was trying to do something that would further my spiritual search or service. And I had applied for a job during the summer vacation. I think it was a home for delinquent boys or teenagers. And I just felt very sure that this is the will of God for me. So you can imagine my disappointment about a week before classes got out when I received a letter that I had not been accepted for the post for which I had applied. I felt very disappointed because I didn't really want to go home to northern Michigan and get a job as a waitress or in a motel, which were the kinds of jobs that you could mostly get there. And so Ruth said to me, well, why don't you come home with me? I live in the outskirts of Chicago. And there's always lots of programs in the inner city during vacations. Great. That was wonderful. And besides, between Arizona and Michigan, Chicago was right on the way. So I went home with Ruth. Well, it ended up she lived in Wilmette, eight blocks from the temple. And she and her mother were Baha'is. Why don't you explain, Joan, when you mean the temple? The Baha'is throughout the world have eight or nine important houses of worship. These are buildings which are open to people of all religions to come and pray. And their architecture is quite distinctive. Every Baha'i house of worship has nine sides and a dome on top which symbolizes the fact that there are many roads to God but that we are Inside, we are all under the same God. Several of these houses of worship have won prizes for their architectural design. I mean, they're very outstanding and they're very large. I mean, several hundred people can go into a house of worship, but there are no sermons or religious services as such. Anyone can go in from any religion and go in and pray. The only services that there are depends on the particular house of worship. There are only readings from the holy writings of different religions of the world and sometimes put to music. So anyway, the house of worship in the United States, there's only one in the United States that we give this name of as a house of worship, is in Wilmette, Illinois, which is in the outskirts of Chicago. So I was living with Ruth and her family. They lived very close to the house of worship. Obviously, when you're living with someone else, you kind of tag along wherever they go. So I went with her to the house of worship. They lent me a few Baha'i books. I was reading a little bit about the Baha'i faith, but 
at that time in my life, I had a very, I don't know how to call it, okay, a very strong character. In other words, I would get upset easily and express my views very strongly. And so I would read and I would find something with which I wasn't in agreement. And I said, ah, no, I don't like this. And so I would just stop reading. Anyway, I always say that Baha'u'llah had to use shock therapy with me. Baha'u'llah being the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. Anyway, I kind of say this as, as a joke, but it really is kind of the path I took because it was like in order for, to get me to pay attention to the Baha'i faith, he had to challenge me or he had to put me in challenging situations. So one day I was with Ruth in the house of worship, which I loved because, like I said, I was very into prayer. In the house of worship in Wilmette, there is a, like a basement part, which, but it's, very, it's not like a basement. It's very well equipped and so on. But there's a hall. It's called Foundation Hall, where often they have speakers giving a talk. And so after visiting the house of worship, Ruth asked me, well, you want to go in and listen? So I did. Imagine my shock when the speaker mentioned that Baha'is consider that Baha'u'llah is the return of Christ. What? I mean, <laughs> I might not believe that Christ is going to come literally sitting on top of the clouds, but at least everyone in the world will know about it. I mean, it's impossible that he could have come and, and people not know about it. That was my reaction. What I later learned is that when Baha'is explain that Baha'u'llah is the return of Christ, it's because Baha'is believe that the founders of all the major religions, such as Moses, Muhammad, Buddha, Krishna, are carriers of the same spirit of God, the same Holy Spirit. The same spirit of God speaks through each of them, and so that the words that each of them reveals is the word of God. And that when Christ spoke of his return, he wasn't speaking of a physical return in exactly the same body, but that he was speaking of the return of the same spirit, but in another person who Baha'is believe is Baha'u'llah. Similar to the fact that even the prophecies in the Old Testament that the Messiah would come, Jesus didn't fulfill them literally, but fulfilled them spiritually or symbolically, like he didn't come as a king of the Jews and so on. And actually, now as a Baha'i and with much greater understanding, speaking of the prophecies about the coming of Christ, there is one that is very related to this topic of the return, because you may remember that in the gospel according to Matthew, I think it, it's 17, 10 to 13, the disciples are asking Christ, how come, the fair, how come the scribes say that first Elijah has to return? You know, the disciples didn't know how to answer that. They were fishermen. They weren't religious students. So they were stuck. And Christ replied unto them that, verily I say unto you, Elijah has returned. And then the next verse says, and they understood that he was speaking of John the Baptist. So that's very interesting that Christ himself affirmed that the prophecy of Elijah returning was fulfilled by the coming of John the Baptist, in spite of the fact that he had a different name, he had a different body, he had a natural birth, because according to the Bible, 
Elijah was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. So that's a very interesting analogy. It makes you think, then, what was Christ referring to when he spoke about his own return? So I'm speaking with Joan Hernandez, author of the book, The Baha'i Response to the Crisis of Our Time, What Each of Us Can Do to Create a Better World. And we get, we'll get to the book shortly. But I had asked Joan to describe her spiritual journey that led her to the Baha'i faith, and it brought her up to being invited by a friend to spend the summer in Wilmette, Illinois, which was adjacent to the Baha'i House of Worship there in the, in the United States. So basically, like I said, it's, I kept getting hit by things that, what, how can this be? To such a degree that Ruth and her mother, who were very loving persons, thought, well, she's a guest in our house. We don't want to offend her. We better not talk to her about the Baha'i faith anymore. But at the same time that I was intellectually discussing with them or fighting with them, I was spiritually attracted. I had joined the church or had begun attending a church, which was, like I said, my habit wherever I went, I tried to attend church someplace. It happened that this church was very divided. The ministers wanted to work in the inner city, and the congregation was very happy with its, you know, its little group in suburban Chicago. So I would walk to church every Sunday saying the Baha'i prayer for unity. Baha'is have a great number of prayers that were revealed by the prophet founder Baha'u'llah, just as Christians have the Lord's Prayer, which was revealed directly by Christ, but Baha'u'llah, since he came so much more recently, only 200 years ago, revealed dozens or actually hundreds of different prayers for different occasions. So I would walk to church every Sunday saying the Baha'i Prayer for Unity for the people in this church. I did come to the point because they had referred to Baha'u'llah as a prophet, and as a Christian, I considered that a prophet was what Baha'is would call minor prophets such as those we find in the Old Testament, Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and so on. So yeah, okay, I can accept that Baha'u'llah is a prophet. But my discussion with the Baha'is was, but why do I have to become a Baha'i? I already have my relationship with God through Christ, and I can accept the new teachings that Baha'u'llah has brought to establish a better world of justice, of unity, things like the universal education, equal rights for men and women, the investigation of truth, the elimination of prejudice, that the basis of all religions are one. And even some that hadn't occurred to me or that I hadn't heard of before, such as an auxiliary universal language. Okay, I can accept these new teachings, but I can remain a Christian. Why not? So that was kind of my first step, you could say, towards the Baha'i faith but I was still fighting against it. Like, why do I have to become a Baha'i? Then as I continued learning a bit more, a second step was, well, I could see for someone who didn't have any religion how it might be easier to find a connection with God and a path towards God through the Baha'i faith because I know how hard I've been working, especially these last four years, and trying to find the essence of Christianity. So. Yeah, if you don't have a religion, go ahead, become a Baha'i. But again, why do I have to become a Baha'i? So I was continuing along this line 
until finally there was a Baha'i Youth Conference, the first national Baha'i Youth Conference of the United States. This was in 1968. As often occurs among Baha'i youth, Ruth invited all of her friends from Arizona to stay over at her house. So it was like wall-to-wall Baha'i youth staying at her house. One of them began talking quite a bit with me. Her name was Nancy. And I remember one evening we started talking and we continued talking and we went upstairs and shut ourselves in the bathroom so we wouldn't bother anyone and continued until about three o'clock in the morning. And finally, I said to her, remember, I said that I was a very, I don't know, I tended to fight. I had very strong opinions. And I kind of said, well, I don't care what you Baha'is say because you're already convinced. But I've said that I accept the Baha'u'llah as a prophet. Show me what he says about himself. And she ran out and got a book of Baha'i writings. It's called Gleanings from the Writings of Baha'u'llah. And in that book, he states very clearly, O Jews, if ye be intent upon crucifying Christ once more, then do it to me, because in me his spirit has returned. And just with that very, very short passage, what I'd been going through for the former month, more or less, I intellectually accepted Baha'u'llah, but I didn't say it to anyone. Anyway, after that, I went through about three more weeks because I felt I had to bring it, my belief from my head down to my heart. And I did some interesting things like going to a Christian church and praying and thanking Christ for bringing me to Baha'u'llah. After about three weeks, when I felt ready, I declared my faith in Baha'u'llah and became a Baha'i. Or say, I formally said that I was a Baha'i. So, Joan, maybe you could help me a little bit understanding the transition from your initial reaction to there's no way you could accept Baha'u'llah as the return of Christ. That was sort of a shocker for you when you heard that from that talk at the House of Worship. Do you actually being able to accept Baha'u'llah as the return of Christ? How did that transition happen? My head, my intellect was fighting against it, but my heart was attracted. For one thing, another teaching of Baha'u'llah that I hadn't mentioned is the agreement between science and religion or between reason and religion. As I mentioned before, that was like one dichotomy I had experienced in my life as a Christian, that some churches seemed to be more on the side of reason, very logical, good moral teachings. Obviously, they prayed, but the heart didn't seem to be as involved. And on the other side, Churches where, you know, it felt like people were very emotionally connected with God, but often combined with beliefs that I could not accept as a thinking university student and also combined sometimes with prejudices against people in other religions. And so I don't think I could have articulated it at that time, but in the Baha'i faith, I found a religion where it was possible for me to have a deep belief in God and not only belief, but a deep practice of prayer and relationship with God. But all of the teachings made sense. I was free to ask any questions that I wanted, even if I got upset and asked questions, but there were always answers. And also, like I said, this took place. It didn't really take that long, but let's say over the course of about a month, but I was becoming increasingly attracted and like I said, I was kind of in this process of coming closer to accepting the Baha'i faith or Baha'u'llah in the sense that, okay, he's a prophet, 
okay, it could be good for other people, but why do I have to do it? Like I was gradually being more attracted. It's actually the heart, even though my final acceptance wasn't, I feel like it was an intellectual acceptance when my friend shared the passage from Baha'u'llah's writings when he said that. But somehow it was also different, maybe because of the fact that I'd already heard it before, and now I had a better understanding of what Baha'is meant by that. It wasn't like a physical return of the physical body of Christ. I think it was probably a combination of those things, feeling gradually attracted and feeling really overjoyed at finding a religion where I could reason and feel very close to God and have a deep spiritual practice at the same time. So I'm speaking with Joan Hernandez, author of the book, The Baha'i Response to the Crisis of Our Time, What Each of Us Can Do to Create a Baha'i World. So Joan, why don't we take some time now to talk about your book. What inspired you to write this book? Maybe I should mention a little bit about where I live. I'm living in Bolivia in South America. Actually, right after I got out of college, I went as a Baha'i pioneer to Guatemala. Pioneer is the term that Baha'is use. It's someone like a, an, a voluntary missionary. In other words, you don't get paid, but the reason you move, your motive for moving to another country is to help the Baha'is in that country with their activities. Especially at the time that I became a Baha'i in 1968, there was a very strong movement among the Baha'i youth in the United States that it's like a real Baha'i goes pioneering. A real Baha'i goes to have an experience of serving in another country and promoting the unity of mankind by getting to know other people from other nationalities, other languages, and so on. So I moved to Guatemala right exactly right out of college. And then 19 years later, I had the opportunity to move to Bolivia to work in Newer University, which is a, a university inspired by Baha'i principles. And both in Guatemala and at Newer University, I had already written a number of books. So writing was not new to me. So why don't you just name a few other books that you've written? A number of them are in Spanish, but I'll mention a few that are in English. One of the most popular ones is called Love, Courtship, and Marriage. Another one of which I am a co-author is called Transformative Leadership. There's a, another version of that, a simplified version of it that's called Moral Leadership, because that was the original name in Spanish. There is another one which is called Giving Love and Encouragement. Another one is related to consultation, which is a way of making decisions based on consensus and based on the investigation of truth. In other words, the idea that no one has the whole truth of a situation, so we need to listen to one another to get to a better understanding of truth. Those are a few of the ones that are in, in English. You can find them all on Amazon under the name of Joan Hernandez. So I'm speaking with Joan Hernandez, the author of the book, The Baha'i Response to the Crisis of Our Time, What Each of Us Can Do to Create a Better World. And I asked Joan and she's describing what inspired her to write this book. So what I'm saying is that I did have former experience as an author. For those of you who are not familiar with the Baha'i faith, the Baha'i faith does not have any ministers or priests or individual leaders. 
is organized around institutions which are elected. These institutions exist on the local, on the national, and on the international level. On the international level, the institution is called the Universal House of Justice. The Universal House of Justice sends messages, usually or often two or three a year, to the Baha'is of the world to guide the Baha'is in the next steps that we can carry out in constructing a world of peace, of justice, and of unity. In 2008, also in 2006, actually the whole first decade of the 2000s, Uh, a number of messages had come from the Universal House of Justice, giving guidance to the Baha'is of the world. And I had read them. But I also realized that relatively few people had a grasp of the main ideas of this series of messages. Since one of my talents, I guess you could say, is expressing complex ideas in simple language, including examples, The idea came to me that I could take the ideas in in these messages and explain them using extracts, but also using my own explanations to make it an easier way for people to read and understand these messages. This was still in, in Bolivia where I'm living. So the first edition of the book was written in Spanish in the year 2008. So the years continued passing. And there were more messages from the House of Justice and a very important one that came relatively recently, December 29th, 2015. There were so many new insights and so much new guidance in these messages, especially the December 29th, 2015 message that I felt like the book that I had written in 2008 was out of date and that it was really needful to write a second edition. So I did. But by that time, I'd also had some experience with publishing on Kindle or through CreateSpace on Amazon. And I thought, okay, this time, instead of just publishing in Spanish, let's also publish in English, which I did. So basically, I wrote the book. I could still say with the same motivation because once I was visiting my daughter in Houston and was attending a Baha'i meeting when the Baha'is there were studying the message from the House of Justice. And when I say a message, I'm talking like 20 pages. I'm not talking like two pages. And someone was commenting on this. We really need to have like an explanation of this that makes it easy to understand because often we just read one or two paragraphs, but we don't really have an overview of the whole message. So when I heard that comment, I was in the process of writing the English version of the book. And I thought, okay, that's a confirmation. That's saying I'm on the right track. And so I finished the book and then published it in 2016. So I'm speaking with Joan Hernandez, author of the book, The Baha'i Response to the Crisis of Our Time, What Each of Us Can Do to Create a Better World. Now, Joan, you have selected a passage that we could have you read for the interview? Yes. This passage is called The Role of a Creative Minority in the Transformation of Society. Well, let me tell you a little bit more about the book as such. We could really say the book is almost divided into two parts. The first part is of great interest both for, I think, Baha'is and people who are just learning about the Baha'i faith. And it begins by talking about the times in which we are living, 
which are characterized by two powerful processes, the process of disintegration, which we see every time we turn on the news, all the terrible things that are happening in this world, but also a process of integration, which is much quieter. But if we look closely, there are ever greater numbers of individuals and organizations that are working for a better world. So the book goes on to talk about the fact that each and every person can contribute to the process of integration. However, many of us are spectators. In other words, we're not bad. We're not doing things which are contributing necessarily to disintegration, but we kind of feel like powerless because the problems of the world are so big. And so we listen to the news, we complain about what's happening, but we're like spectators, like spectators at a football game. We watch, we comment on it, but we're not in on the action. The book is written to kind of say how you can get into the action, at least according to the teachings of the Baha'i faith. And basically what the Baha'i faith, and more specifically the Universal House of Justice is telling us, is to concentrate on moral education, on different age levels, for children, for adolescents, for youth, and for adults. The Baha'i Faith has developed a systematic program in each of these different levels. The section that I'm going to read, which is called The Role of a Creative Minority in the Transformation of Society, is still in the first part of the book, which is like to encourage people to do whatever is in their power, either in other organizations of which they are members, or joining in this effort that the Baha'is of the world are making in a completely non-denominational way to emphasize the development of moral qualities and the spirit of service among the different age groups with the support of many other people who are also doing the same thing and with a systematic program already developed. That's kind of the background for this section that I'm going to read, which is called The Role of a Creative Minority in the Transformation of Society. And the purpose of the section is to give us the idea that we don't need to be, get, be discouraged because our numbers are small. Throughout history, civilizations have been born, developed, reached their apex and then declined until they eventually disappear and are replaced by a new civilization. The historian Arnold Toynbee has studied this process in more than 20 civilizations, identifying certain common patterns. One of his most interesting discoveries has to do with the transition that occurs when one civilization is declining and the seeds of a new civilization are quietly incubating in the grassroots of society. According to Toynbee, long before a declining civilization completely disintegrates, in the grassroots of society, a new social vision gradually comes into being that is better suited to face the existing challenges. At first, very few people accept this vision, but gradually their numbers grow. These people form a creative minority. With time, the creative minority grows still further until finally it reaches a critical mass at which a tipping point occurs. The new vision becomes popular and great numbers of people begin to accept it, leading to qualitative change. 
Although many characteristics of the declining civilization live on during some time, the ideals of the new civilization are widely accepted, and this gradually begins to develop its inherent potential. What is surprising is the relatively small percentage of people that need to become part of the creative minority in order for it to reach critical mass. This is due to the fact that most people are not bad. They are simply spectators who want a better world, but either because they ignore what they could do or are habitually passive, they have never taken action. However, once everyone begins to accept the new vision, they do too. Anticipating this phenomenon in the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah declared, when the victory arriveth, every man shall profess himself as believer and shall hasten to the shelter of God's faith. Happy are they who in the days of world-encompassing trials have stood fast in the cause and refused to swerve from its truth. That is, once the Baha'i faith becomes popular and everyone recognizes that Baha'u'llah's teachings provide the guidance for the construction of a new civilization, multitudes of people will become Baha'is. Although that is good and necessary, it does not have the same value as recognizing Baha'u'llah, striving to practice his teachings and working to extend his cause today when the Baha'i faith is still relatively unknown and it is challenging to do so. Moreover, the acceptance of Baha'u'llah in this historical moment by greater numbers of people who are dedicated to practicing his guidance and contributing to the construction of a better world will shorten the time during which humanity suffers. Although he uses other terms, Shoghi Effendi, the guardian of the Baha'i faith, also speaks of the growth of a creative minority that has grasped Baha'u'llah's message and committed themselves to its practice, continuing until it reaches the point in which the mass is accepted in a short period of time. He emphasizes, a steady flow of reinforcements will presage and hasten the advent of the day which is prophesied by Abdul Baha will witness the entry by troops of people of diverse nations and races into the Baha'i world. A day which viewed in its proper perspective will be the prelude to that long awaited hour when a mass conversion on the part of these same nations and races and as a direct result of a chain of events momentous and possibly catastrophic in nature will suddenly revolutionize the fortunes of the faith, derange the equilibrium of the world, and reinforce a thousandfold the numerical strength, as well as the material power and the spiritual authority of the faith of Baha'u'llah. This quote clarifies that in the Baha'i faith, mass conversion will be triggered by a chain of events momentous and possibly catastrophic in nature. It will not merely be the result of reaching a critical mass, although that is also necessary. A steady flow of reinforcements and entry by troops are essential stages, leading to mass conversion. 
The Universal House of Justice offers concrete guidance on how we can contribute to the advance of these first two stages. However, before studying this guidance, we need to examine the benefits for humanity that will come from growing numbers of persons accepting and practicing Baha'u'llah's teachings and principles. So I'm speaking with Joan Hernandez, who has just read an excerpt from her book, The Baha'i Response to the Crisis of Our Time, What Each of Us Can Do to Create a Better World. Now, Joan, how would you imagine someone like yourself, let's say back in the 60s, when you were still at Prescott College, and you had first heard about the Baha'i faith and heard that quote or that excerpt from what you read, what do you think your response would have been then? I think I might have had a combined response. I think in one sense it would be hopeful because looking at the world, especially today, even more than back in the 60s, because the 60s was a time of hope and idealism. But especially if I had heard that, let's say, you know, as the world is today, I think it would give me hope because it is so easy to become disillusioned with all the negativity that you hear, especially on the news and see around you. But at the same time, I might have questions. Do I have to become a Baha'i? Or as part of, maybe not the quote, but part of the explanation goes, that the important thing is for growing numbers of people to become familiar with the teachings of Baha'u'llah, to make an effort to put into practice his teachings and principles, whether they become Baha'is or simply are friends of the faith. I'd like to mention here that many of the people who are serving as teachers of children's classes or animators of junior youth groups and many of the participants in these activities, actually I should say the majority of the participants in these activities are not Baha'is, but they are people who feel that the Baha'is have something positive to offer to the world, that the Baha'is do not pressure them to become Baha'is. They explain what the Baha'i faith is about and invite them to help us. Would you like to work with us in, in these activities which are contributing to a better world? And as long as the invitation was framed in those terms without pressure that right now I have to become a Baha'i, I think it would have been very attractive to me. I've mostly talked about the first part of the book, which kind of justifies the Baha'i approach to the problems of our time. I would just like to mention, especially in case there are any Baha'i listeners, that the second part of the book goes much more into what the Baha'is are doing, explains the nature of activities like devotional meetings, children's classes, junior youth groups, and study circles, and also talks about the different milestones that communities go through in developing these activities in their communities until they actually reach the frontiers of learning, which is a state in which often in small communities or neighborhoods, the majority of the youth or children are engaged in these activities. We are actually seeing glimmerings of this new conversation where the parents you know, give testimony that they say that no, since, you know, the children and youth have been involved in these activities, you know, the problems such as drugs, drinking, teenage pregnancies, and others which are plaguing our times have disappeared. 
or have greatly diminished. And so the second half of the book, I would say, is more oriented towards those Baha'is who are actively engaged in the process of carrying out these activities and want to have an easy, quick reference from the letters of the House of Justice, which can guide them. The first part of the book, I would say, is of great interest to all people. Or say You don't have to be a Baha'i to become interested because it basically provides ideas of what each of us can do, each one in a very small way, but each one contributing to what is a worldwide movement, because I should mention that the Baha'is are in every single country of the world and are carrying out these activities. So it gives a hopeful way, which is not difficult, in which each person can participate. So would you describe this process that you're talking about as a community-building process? Exactly. Because the process is, is especially effective when in a very small geographical area, there are tens and actually hundreds of people of different age groups involved in the different activities. And so it's like they reinforce each other. And so the culture of the community or of the neighborhood actually begins to change. That is the whole purpose of the Baha'i faith, as I said, to establish a society which is characterized by justice, by unity, by the absence of prejudice, in which people truly care for one another and consult with one another about what they can do to better their communities. Joan, thank you so much for sharing about your spiritual journey and about your book, The Baha'i Response to the Crisis of Our Time. Thank you so much, Joan. You are very welcome. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And if any of the listeners are interested in either getting a copy of my book or of any of the, any of the other books that I've written, you can find them all on Amazon, both in Kindle and in print form, under the name Joan Hernandez. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Joan Hernandez, author of the book, The Baha'i Response to the Crisis of Our Time, What Each of Us Can Do to Create a Better World. You can find this interview and other interviews at abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
but the Lord of Lords, He who provideth the means and unlocketh the door. I beg thee to forgive me, O oh my Lord, for every mention but the mention of thee, and for every praise but the praise of thee, and for every delight but delight in thy nearness, and for every pleasure but the pleasure of communion with thee and for every joy but the joy of thy love and of thy good pleasure and for all things pertaining unto me which bear no relationship unto thee O thou who art the Lord of the doors They can take my life all away But this love will never change They can take my rights away But I'll grow stronger every day They can take my life away But this love will never change Take my rights away, but I'll grow stronger every day. It's my right to live a life that's free, my right to simply be a citizen who believes in world equality. We shouldn't have to hide or feel the need to cower. Our beliefs shape who we are, they give us inner power. With our heads held high, we shall walk on. With utmost love in our hearts, we remain strong. They ask the question we refuse Because it is our right to choose They can take my life away But this love will never change They can take my rights away But I'll grow stronger every day They can take my life away But this love will never change Take my rights away, but I'll go strong yeah. every day. In the silence of this courtroom, I closed my eyes and saw the future. Around the time that we heard from the prosecutors. And Your Honor, I think you've already made your choice. So to the jury, please excuse me if I rejoice. Cause it was years ago, back when I decided to save a place inside my heart. Where Baha'u'llah's resided. And my family all around the world will watch and pray. So I am not alone. Will I surrender? Not today. They can take my life, my life away. This love will never change. They can take my rights uh, all away. Yeah, I'll grow stronger every day. They can take you can my take life my life away. This love will never change. No, my love will never change. They can take my rights uh, all away. Yeah, I'll grow stronger every day. Yeah. It's my right to an education, my 
the living I'm making And yet they keep taking away from me My material possessions have been ruined and put to pieces My spirit remains a whole, my attachment thus decreases Still in the state, though times have changed, they haven't changed enough The friends must hide, obey, pray to avoid themselves handcuffed Battles change, but sacrifice remains the same This is my devotion that ignites my inner flame They can take my life Take my rights away, but I'm growing stronger every day. They can take my life away, but this love will never change. They can take my rights away, but I'm growing stronger every day. Yeah, they can take my life away, but this love will never change. This love will never change. They can take my rights. Words we'd work no harder for To 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.